Let's pray as we come to the Word of God this morning. Our holy God, we have just declared in our singing and in our prayers that we are in need of you. You have given us ample opportunity over the past few weeks to remind us of our great need. And so now we ask that you would help us through singing, through praying, and through sitting under your word, help deepen our affections for you. Our world consistently assaults our confessions that we've been singing about this morning, and sometimes we get distracted, and we need reminders. And so would you use your word this morning to assure us that Christ is enough. If we have only Christ, then we have everything. Lord, would you take our hearts to Christ? Would you make him our great treasure and delight? And would you light every heart on fire with joy for Christ? And I pray that you would take this sermon and this sermon would be used as a pebble that is thrown into the pond of your purposes and there would be ripple effects for 15, 000, from 15,000 miles away for 15,000 years if it would so be your will to tarry. Lord, do far more with this sermon than we could ask or imagine, we pray in the matchless name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Well, the coronavirus pandemic has flipped life upside down as we've known it. And some of us are experiencing that flip as, as uh, we have been laid off of work. For others, work has been temporary, temporarily suspended. For others, we're busier than ever as we seek to respond to the needs of this health crisis. Some of us are struggling with the isolation that this pandemic has created and struggling with how that relates to our desire and our need for companionship and how to navigate through life. Others are gripped by a host of fears as it relates to the uncertainty of the days ahead. What's, what's true is that life is being lived at a somewhat slower pace. Sports have been removed. Schooling is going to look different. That's right, students. It will look different. And here's what I've been reminded of this week. That the other various trials in our lives, they do not cease merely because the coronavirus pandemic shows up. In fact, for some of us, this season has been tremendously difficult. Not, not because of the coronavirus per se, but how this then adds to the already difficult various trials that we've been experiencing. Trials are difficult to navigate in and of themselves, but the accumulation of several trials can easily send us into a place where we doubt our understanding of God. We question what it is that he's doing. And on good days, trials are difficult to navigate. But on bad days, it brings us to places where we would think things that we would never admit or we doubt things in which we've been assured of for a long time. Well, if you're familiar with any of these experiences, any of these thoughts, any of these feelings, I've got good news for you today. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8 is for you. This morning, we will continue our series through the letter of James that we began last week. This letter, we said, was written to Christians who were spread out because of persecution. And that persecution then led to various trials, a host of other trials. And James is writing to call these disheartened Christians and these weary Christians to put their faith into practice. James is reminding these Christians that indeed their faith was built for days like this. Days that are marked with trials. In fact, James will go on to say that a faith 
that doesn't translate into good works is a worthless faith. And so for every Christian, both the original audience then and us today, for every Christian, the gift of faith is alive and it's fruitful and it produces good works. It doesn't produce good works to earn something. It produces good works because it's been given something. And as we saw in verses 1 through 4, trials are given to us by God with a purpose. Trials are given to us to endure, uh, to produce endurance. And when endurance runs its course, it makes us complete, mature, lacking nothing. And what this means is that trials have been designed by God so as to push you and I beyond ourselves. Because when that happens, we then reach out in humility to the one who's in control. You see, sadly, every one of us, we think we're wiser than we actually are. We believe that we're stronger than we actually are. We believe that we're more righteous than we actually are. And oh, the irony. The irony is not that our weaknesses keep us from God, but our delusions of being strong. That's what keeps us from God. We quoted this last week, but Paul Tripp has said, God will take you where you have not intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. And James affirms that in his letter. James begins by reminding the Christians in his letter about the presence of trials, not just the presence of trials, but the purpose of trials. And not just the presence and the purpose of trials, but then how we ought to respond to these trials. We see that in verses 1 through 4. And his pastoral care is going to continue as he draws attention to what they lack in their trials. What they most need during their trials. And where that is found. And so if you're experiencing trials this morning, this text is meant to serve your soul. God is not absent, and he is not silent in your trials. But in order to benefit from our trials, what we are in need of is wisdom. Wisdom in how to see them. Wisdom in not wasting them. And what James does between verses 4 and 5 is he turns their attention away from the future effects that endurance through trials can produce in them, and he brings their eyes and their attention to the, his present concern, which is what it is that they lack. This isn't a new section of unrelated truths. In fact, we'll see that verses 5 through 8 are closely connected to verses 1 through 4, and they're held together by this word, lack. You see lack there in verse 4, and then you see lack there in verse 5. And so to give us context of, of James's original thought and intent, let me just read this morning, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them and to follow along. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the word of the Lord says this, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. And it will be given to him, but he must ask in faith, Without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Pastor H.B. Charles says of this passage, when we are facing trials, we pray for provision, healing, strength, protection, intervention, miracles, deliverance, and many other things besides wisdom. We ask how to get out of trials when we should ask what to get out of our trials. We should pray for the unclaimed but greatly needed gift 
of wisdom. This morning, as we walk through verses five through eight, I want to look at three truths and a condition that I believe will help us as it was intended to help the original audience more faithfully walk out what they believe in the midst of their trials. First truth is this. Trials can lead us away from wisdom. Trials can lead us away from wisdom. Another, word, another way to think about this is uh, James introduces a problem here in verse 5. Listen again to how verse 5 begins. But if any of you lacks wisdom. As we discussed last week, one of the first casualties that, uh, that are to fall is often the biblical perspective of a trial. And so whenever I am introduced or whenever a trial comes my way, oftentimes one of the first things to go is the understanding of the biblical purpose and perspective of the trial. And when James writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, that conditional if is not suggesting that there are some who don't lack wisdom. No, we all need wisdom. And yet James states this in a way that would call each person to examine themselves. And in examining them, themselves, they would see how it is that they lack wisdom. And in humility, they would confess their lack of wisdom and their need for it. And so what is this wisdom that trials can keep us from? Well, any understanding from the Bible of what wisdom is must begin with something close to Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. As I was reading an article this week, I was reminded of two chapters in, uh, in my favorite non-biblical book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Chapters 9 and 10, perhaps some of the best perspective on the topic of God's wisdom. So I would just encourage you this week, if you have the book, Knowing God, pull it off your shelves and just allow Packer to pastor you in considering the wisdom of God. And if you don't have the book, I would encourage you to remedy that soon. Listen to what Packer says as he thinks about the wisdom of God. He says, not till we become humble and teachable. Standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our own littleness, distrusting our own thoughts, and willing to have our minds turned upside down, can divine wisdom be ours. As one pastor would say, wisdom of God is a gift from God that begins with beholding the character of God and results in skillfully living life for the glory of God by walking in the ways of God. One more time. Wisdom of God is a gift from God that begins with beholding the character of God and results in skillfully living life for the glory of God by walking in the ways of God. And so when we think of wisdom, wisdom is discerning and perceiving the purposes of God and then skillfully applying those, that understanding and our faith during a trial. And not just for a season during a trial, as we talked about last week, but for the duration of a trial. Wisdom is not merely knowledge. It's how to apply that knowledge to my life. Wisdom is applying truth to the problems of life. It's the ability to see life the way that James pictured it in verses 2 through 4. That we can consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. We know we're wrestling with wisdom whenever we face a trial and we can't see the biblical perspective and understand God's design behind the trial. Someone has said knowledge is the ability to take things apart while wisdom is the ability to put them together again. The key to enduring trials with joy is our ability to know or understand that God's purpose in and through the trial is to transform us to produce something in us that we couldn't produce in and of ourselves that would make us look more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. This wisdom gives us insight that we need to see that no matter what the trial feels like, the trial is not purposeless. 
and the trial is not, it's not hopeless. And the reason James begins this letter this way is because this godly wisdom is critical whenever we meet various trials. And I want to be clear, this type of godly wisdom is not optional for the Christian life. It is vital. We will encounter various trials. And unless we're going to be tossed to and fro every time a trial comes and we're going to be attempted to slide off of our foundation of belief in who God is and what he does and why he does them, then we need divine wisdom. This divine wisdom is the only means that we will understand and we will benefit from our trials. Again, I'm helped. One pastor said divine wisdom helps us to make sense of life when life doesn't seem to make sense to us. And I want to be clear, but if any of you lacks wisdom, I've used this verse and I have heard this verse used as the go-to verse for important decisions in life. What school I'm going to go to, the career I'm going to take, the relationship I'm going to pursue, etc. And, and while I do not want to discourage any of us in coming to God for major life-changing decisions, in fact, at the end of James, James chapter 4 verse 2 will tell us to just to pray for, for everything, to take all of our requests to God. At the end of James chapter 5, it's just uh, scenario after scenario of why we ought to be praying. And so I want to be clear, it is a good and needed and right thing for us to come to God and ask for help as it relates to decision making. But it is helpful for us to remember that this verse was written not for general guidance on anything in life, but on those who were in the midst of a trial, who were in need of God's grace and his wisdom on how to respond in the trial. You see, we need wisdom because we don't count it all joy when we encounter various trials. Like I wonder how often your thoughts run quickly and I ask this question because I know mine do. I encounter a trial and I begin to ask, why me? Why now? Why so long? Why this? And James would encourage our hearts this morning to just ask the Lord for what it is that we need. And that is wisdom. Brothers and sisters, in what ways are your trials leading you away from wisdom? How are they tempting you to cut against what it is that you profess to believe about God? Well, good news. For those of us who lack this kind of perspective and wisdom, God has a remedy. And it leads us to the second truth. The second truth is that prayer is the God-honoring means of finding wisdom. Prayer is the God-honoring means of finding wisdom. Again, see how this is developed, not, not from, not from uh, just my thoughts, see how this is developed in verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Let, the, let him ask of God. And with this directive, James has just served the soul of every person who is walking through a trial. For of, of every person who is seeking to endure trials and count them joy, he has served our souls. Why? Because he's directed, he's redirected our eyes away from our trials and he's directed them and routed them towards God. James directs the Christian to the source of all wisdom. And he highlights the priority of prayer if we are to endure trials. And so if, if the reality that trials can lead us away from wisdom, if that's the problem, then prayer is the God-honoring means of finding wisdom. That's the prescription. God is the ultimate source of true wisdom. And to receive wisdom that we need in the face of life's trials, we must ask God for it. 
James doesn't say you need more time. You need more life experience. You need more education to lay hold of this wisdom. In fact, we would be served this morning to check our hearts to ensure that we're not turning to other things in order to find godly wisdom that can only be found and given from God. that we're not turning to other things to to receive what only prayer can accomplish. And I praise God this morning for the gift of of pastors and counselors and prayer partners and experts and and Google and, uh, and friends and family, but these are not the source of true wisdom. The wisdom that we need to face life's trials is only a prayer away. God is the one who is the source of true wisdom. And perhaps verses 2 through 4, that sort of that idea of encountering trials and able to consider those trials as all joy, perhaps that perspective is foreign to us because honestly, a vibrant life marked by the verse 5 kind of prayer is foreign to us. I wonder the connection. The connection between those of us that are struggling to find any joy in our trials and how closely that's connected to those of us who are not faithful and seeking wisdom that can only be given from God. Trials exceed human resources. Trials exhaust human strength. Trials drive us to God in prayer. Trials remind us of our weakness. And prayer reminds us of the greatness and the graciousness of God. Brothers and sisters, when we face trials, we must pray. If your heart says yes and amen, I want to count it all joy when I endure trials, then your heart has to be willing to get up when no one else is looking and hit your knees and plead with God to give you what you lack. How easy it is for us to stand and say, oh yes, we want two through four. And yet to not be diligent, to beg and to beseech and to seek the face of God who gives godly wisdom to those who lack it. I'm helped by Charles Spurgeon, who says, In seasons of severe trial, Christians have nothing on earth in which to trust. And we are therefore compelled to cast ourselves on our God alone. When our vessel is tilting so far over that it's in danger of capsizing and no human deliverance can avail, we must simply and entirely trust ourselves to the providence and the care of God. And listen to what he says. Happy storm that wrecks us on such a rock as this. Furthermore, exclaim, blessed hurricane that drives the soul to God and to God alone. That is not the natural response when we face trials. And yet it is one that we can lay hold of, and yet it will not happen apart from pleading, begging, seeking God in earnest prayer. We cannot divorce the means of verse 5 through prayer with the outcome of verses 2 through 4. counting it, considering it all joy when we go through trials. Or stated another way, we will never experience the perspective of verses 2 through 4 without the prayerfulness of verse 5. And so I wonder this morning, do you pray? I mean, if, if I'm sure if we were to take a poll, how many of us are in need of wisdom to navigate our trials, I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, would say, yes, I'm in need of wisdom. Well, then the natural follow-up question would be, then do you pray? If the answer is no, or not really, or when I have time, this is what James is seeking to address. The disconnect between what I say I believe and how I'm living. Brothers and sisters, we would be well served to close that gap Allow the Holy Spirit, even now, in the most unorthodox of, uh, just not unorthodox in that sense, but just in the most uh, obscure of ways, sitting at home, watching this, 
that we would allow the Spirit to search our hearts. Uh, allow J.C. Ryle to just pull up a chair and pastor your soul this morning. The question of do you pray is, is one that none can answer but you. Whether you attend public worship or not, your pastors know. Whether you have family prayers in your house or not, your relatives know. But whether you pray in private or not is a matter between yourself and God. Do you pray? Are you in need of wisdom? Why then, if there is a disconnect there, why is it there? And how, by the grace of God, can you address it? What's clear today is that the world around us has slowed down. For the last couple of weeks, we have slowed down. Uh, slowed down. And I, I realize that some of the medical professionals among us are saying, yeah, not quite. And we are thankful to God for your work. But if you think about it, a lot of just the other distractions, whether sports or entertainment, those things are beginning to come to a slower pace. And it's not often that whenever a trial is given, there then is the opportunity or the, the margin for us to process. And yet in God's kindness, that seems to be what's happening. Not only is there a trial that we are facing, but now there's also some margin that we're having the time to process and to think through these things. And so I just wonder this morning, how will you make the most of the margin? If we get to the other side of, of God sort of rewriting and making everything right again, I pray that we don't get to that side and think, oh, I'm the same. Nothing's any different. No, I pray that we would be marked by earnestness in our prayers and that the fruit of that would be seen for years to come because of what it is that we sow even now. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 a reminder to devote ourselves to prayer. John chapter 15, verse 16. This reminder from Jesus to, to pray, and it's interesting, Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 16, I have a mission for my followers so that you might pray. It's not I've given you prayer so that the mission I have for you will be successful. No, good news, church, the outcome is already set. Prayer then serves what it is that we have been called to do. God hasn't merely called us to watch history unfold, but he's invited us to have history shaped by the prayers of his people. David Platt has said, God wills to work through willing intercessors. Cry out to God in prayer for wisdom in your trials. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, would say that it's not margin or time or more routines or different routines that we need, but poverty of spirit as we think about prayer. May you and I never assume that God will give us, apart from prayer, what he has promised to give us only through prayer. May you and I never assume that God will give us apart from prayer what he has promised to give us only through prayer. And James is redirecting our gaze to remind us that there is wisdom that is available and it is only accessed. It's only accessible. And we only access it through prayer. Well, all this sounds good, but what if, what, if, what if when we pray, we catch God on a bad day? How can we know that God will hear and God will answer our prayers? It leads us to our third truth. God is abundantly generous to give wisdom to those who seek it rightly. God is abundantly generous to give wisdom to those who seek it rightly. And so again, looking back, trials can lead us away from wisdom. That's the problem. Prayer is the God-honoring means of finding wisdom. That's the prescription. And yes, another P is coming. God is abundantly generous to give wisdom to those who seek it rightly. That's the promise. Listen again in verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously, 
and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Whoa, 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 James, how in the world can you make a massive promise like this? I mean, just pause for a moment. This is a massive promise to the church and to all followers of Jesus that if any, if all, in the midst of their trials, if they ask for the wisdom that they so desperately need to benefit from the trial and to glorify God in the trial, the promise is that God will give it to them. How in the world can James make this promise? Simple. Because this promise is informed by the person of God. This promise is informed by who God is. James can make this promise because of the generosity of God. Maybe you have forgotten this, and this is another temptation during a trial, is to forget just how generous God is. He is a wildly generous giver. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6 reminds us that wisdom, for the Lord gives wisdom. It's the nature of God to give. He loves to rescue people from their foolishness. He loves to protect his people by his grace. And he loves, he loves to guide his people by his truth. J. Alec Motier helps us ponder and be affected by the generosity of God when he says, no one attribute expresses all that is true about God, but each attribute express, expresses something that is true of him the whole time. God is more than giving, but he's always giving. This is how the giving God gives with a selfless, total concern for us and with an exclusive preoccupation as if he had nothing else to do but to give and to give and to give and to give again. What a God. What kind of God loves like this? What kind of God gives like this? How can something so important as wisdom be so easy to acquire? Simple. Because God is so generous. You and I will never lean in and beg God for wisdom if we first don't understand what wisdom is, but more foundational, if we don't understand just how generous God is. He is a, he is a wisdom-giving God. God of all wisdom is generous, and he loves to give wisdom to his children, particularly when they find themselves in precarious situations. Do you remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7? Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, he says, If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Did you hear what it said in verse 5? But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all. Who gives to all. He shows no favoritism. And so this is good news for us this morning. Imperfect Christians, not those who can walk through trials and really don't need a lot of help. No, the ignorant, us, the confused, us, the immature, us. He doesn't limit who he gives this wisdom to. He doesn't, he doesn't save this wisdom for only the more mature. He gives to all. And do you see what comes after that? He gives to all generously. He never grows tired of giving wisdom. And what's crazy is that some of us grow tired of seeking it. It is there to be laid hold of. And how, how easy and how easily we grow tired of seeking it. Who gives to all generously and without reproach. Without reproach. You know what that means? It means that when we come to God, He doesn't become annoyed with us because of our repeated request for wisdom. 
He doesn't chide us or scold us. He doesn't mock our need for more wisdom. Okay, you again. He doesn't throw our failures in our face. He doesn't play favorites. No, he gives to all generously and without reproach. Brothers and sisters, this is the God whom has pers- who has pursued you, and this is the God who you have the privilege of responding to in worship and knowing better through the word and in leaning into in prayer. This is the God who has invited you to know him. Do not grow weary in leaning in. There should be no reluctance to approach this God and to ask him for the wisdom that we need because it's the wisdom that he has promised and I love even the word there generously could, could have one meaning of just he gives freely, liberally. Or it could also mean that there's a single-mindedness to his giving. That he gives with undivided attention to those who come before him. These things, how he gives to all, and he does so generously, and he does without reproach, it all just highlights his pleasure in giving wisdom whenever he's asked for it. He is never conflicted about giving. He says, you need wisdom? I love to give wisdom. Again, Paul Tripp reminds us, your hope in life is not that you'll reach a level of righteousness whereby grace won't be necessary anymore. No, your hope in life is not that you'll grow to a place of wisdom where you don't need to seek wisdom anymore. No, your hope is one thing, and it's the character of a generous God. And because he's generous, you and I can always have hope. He is a God that loves to meet our needs. Did you hear what I just said? He delights in meeting your needs and giving you wisdom so that you do not waste difficult days. And he'll never throw your neediness back in your face. Instead, he wraps his arms of grace around you and he says, don't be afraid if you're needy. Keep coming to me because I am abundantly generous to give you the wisdom that you lack. What a sweet picture. And I love the ending of verse 5. He will give to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And it will be given to him. And this is a a verse that prosperity preachers love to preach. That whatever it is that you ask, if you have enough faith, that it, it will be given to you. But that sadly, is just ripped out of the context of what James is saying. James is not saying whatever it is that you ask for, that's what you will receive. James says, when you lack wisdom for how not to waste this trial, go to God because he will give you not what you, not, not a need or a request that you have. He will give you the wisdom that you lack. The promise is that the wisdom is being asked for and that the wisdom will be given He's not promising answers. He's promising wisdom. And oh, how easy it is for answers to become idols. We begin to lean in. Lord, would you please? And we start asking, Lord, would you give this? And we begin to hold God to whether or not he's, we hold him hostage to whether or not he's good is depending on whether or not he gives us what it is that we ask for. And then we look and we say, well, James chapter one, verse five says that that should happen. James chapter one, verse five does not say that whatever you ask, you will get it. It says when you lack wisdom, ask God who generously gives it to all without reproach and it will be given to you. This means that perhaps the thing that stands between you and heavenly wisdom is not the trial, but it's, it's you. Your righteousness is in the way of his grace. Your strength is in the way of his wisdom. And he wants us to be driven to a place where we no longer rely on ourselves. That we're left just relying on him. 
Again, that's what trials are intended to do. Trials are intended to bring us to the end of ourselves. And as we come to the end of ourselves, we are driven towards a God who is gloriously generous. And so we're comforted in trials, not because we understand fully what's going on. No, we're comforted in trials because we are clinging to a God who is wise and who is generous and who is near. And so there's hope. There's hope for every Christian in this news. That's what the comfort of the gospel is. And this same God that Christians look to for help is also the same God who has acted decisively to rescue all of his people from their sin. You see, God came into the world in and through the person of Jesus Christ to die for our sins that had separated us from God. And in dying for our sins, the wrath of God was removed. His just displeasure of our sin, the the wrath of God that was owing to every sinner. And by taking our sins upon us, Jesus then, he, he displays God's love. He appeases God's wrath. He satisfies God's justice. And the result for those who would place a living faith, a living trust in Jesus Christ is that there is now no condemnation because Jesus has drank it all. Only acceptance, only love, only approval. And that is only found in the life and in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That alone secures God's love for us. And so what that means is that in Jesus, we don't have to jump through hoops. We don't have to wonder or worry whether or not he loves us. We don't have to, we don't have to, to worry if we're doing enough. He doesn't love us anymore based on what we do. No, by, by nature of our faith and our union with Christ, he loves us like he loves his son. And here's the good news. You can't earn that. And if you can't earn it, then you can't lose it. It's owing to him and his sheer kindness and his grace. And so if this letter is written to Christians with specific applications for how Christians live during trials, there is a standing invitation with every word to those that are not yet Christians. And the invitation that stands is to turn from your life as you know it which is taking you away from God and place your trust in the life and in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only thing that will ever bring you back to God. And I hold this out to my non-Christian friends so that you can know the comfort and the wisdom that God alone gives to his people. Friends, I want you to know that wisdom. And I want you to know that love and that acceptance that you cannot find anywhere else in this world. In trusting in Jesus, you were able to experience this life that's not merely meant to just withstand and endure a trial, but to stay near to God through the trial. And this decision, just to be clear, it's not as easy as just saying, okay, I'm at home, I'm watching this, I'm just going to make a little decision, no one will notice, maybe I'll begin to change my life. No, this decision will cost you everything. It will cost you everything, but you will one day realize in that what you gain, it was all worth it. And let's just be crystal clear, James is telling us what you gain isn't prosperity, and it's not comfort, but what you gain is more of him. And that's the thing that you need most. That is the greatest treasure that you can ever possess. And so my non-Christian friends, would you turn from your sin and place your faith and your trust in the work of Jesus alone? And if you are willing to do that or you have questions about that, reach out to any of us here at Covenant Life. It would be our joy to talk with you further. Where our passage this morning, it ends with a condition. It ends with a condition. It's, it's neat to see how these, how these three points sort of converge, right? Trials demand wisdom. Wisdom demands prayer. And prayer demands faith. And that's what James makes clear in verses 6 through 8. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. 
For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Our prayers must be sincere. James is saying, when you pray, do not doubt God's ability. Do not doubt God's willingness. Do not, do not doubt God's generosity to fulfill this promise. These prayers must be prayed in faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And when we talk about faith, we sometimes talk about wishful thinking. Yeah, I have faith that things are going to get better next week. I have faith. And it's just sort of this wishful thinking. Biblical faith and how the, the biblical authors use faith, it was a relational posture of settled trust. And so we ask with faith. We lean into the character of God when we ask. And that's why we can ask boldly. Let's be careful to understand the nature of doubt. James says, verse 6, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. What's he referencing here? Again, this is another verse and another section of this passage of Scripture that's so easily misunderstood and so often misapplied. He's not saying that our prayer for wisdom is to be prayed without any hint of doubt or any hint of uncertainty. He's not saying you have to have flawless faith. You, know, you have to have flawless prayers. There, there cannot be one inkling of a doubt anywhere in your mind to, as to something about God. That's not what he's saying. In fact, we better understand what he's saying when we look down in verse 8. Because a man who doubts in his prayers is a double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. A double-minded man. It, it, it's maybe better translated double-souled man. Who's tossed here, here, and there. This isn't a description of a Christian who loves God, is trusting in Jesus alone for faith and for salvation and for righteousness, but who's wrestling with an area of doubt about a trial they're experiencing. No, this is someone who has two minds. This is someone who professes to be with God, and yet because life is difficult, their life then begins to deny God. This is someone who has divided loyalties, a divided heart. One commentator said, this man is a walking civil war in which trust and distrust of God are waging back and forth. This man is the pattern for John Bunyan's Mr. Facing Both Ways in Pilgrim's Progress. This is the man who glances at God, but he longs for the world. And what James is saying is that there cannot be divided loyalties. In fact, in James chapter 4, verse 4, he's going to say, Did you not know that friendship with the world brings you at odds with God? The man that James is warning not to be like is the man who prays for wisdom, but deep down in his soul, he's unsure of whether or not he's really committed to God. You see, God has no commitment or desire to give you wisdom so that your self-focused purposes will work. He has no desire to give you wisdom so that your building of kingdom of self will go on. Craig Blumberg, in his commentary, says this description hits close to home in an age of nominal Christianity. Christians who attend church from time to time but are not submitted to God. And the picture is that there is a wave that is always changing. Not a guy who's trusting in God and seeking clarity in an area there's not understanding. Or even wrestling through a doubt that has popped up on the radar. This is one who is unstable. I'm not even sure I can follow this God because I'm not sure I'm committed to him or submitted to him. And it's clear, it's clear in verse 8, being a double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. 
not merely unstable in the way or in the area that he has questions, because he's not committed, because there's not allegiance and loyalty and devotion, he's, un, he's unstable in all of his ways. If you and I are not committed and submitted, then every area of our lives will be adversely affected. And James, is, he includes this caution, this condition in verses 6 through 8 to warn his readers to not see prayer as a magical, mechanical thing that we just add on that's, so we can twist God's arm. No, that would make God a means to something else. And God will not be mocked. And he will not share his glory with anyone or anything else. You see, God has no desire and interest in answering prayers when our hearts long for other things. Why? Because he loves us too much to affirm ungodly motives. This man's commitment to the Lord isn't sincere. And I hope for the sincere among us that this doesn't unsettle you. But rather, my hope this week has been that this would disrupt anyone who's attempting to serve two masters, who's attempting to play the game, that I can go through the motions and yet my heart be far away. And then maybe even during trials, I can turn and ask for wisdom and then shake my, my fist in the face of God and say, why did you not give me what I asked for? And James is being very clear. If you're double-minded, your prayer will not be answered. And so if that's you this morning, I just want to call you to turn from your double-mindedness. Repent of your sin. And look to the cross where Jesus died for that sin. And look to the empty tomb where he was raised for your right standing. And so do you see what James has done? In these four verses, five through eight, James has taken our eyes off of ourselves and our trials and he's placed them on the generosity of God. This God who delights to give his people wisdom for their trials. And since God has already displayed his generosity in Christ on the cross for our sins, brothers and sisters, it shouldn't be difficult to trust God to give us what we lack in regards to wisdom. Let's pray. God, as your word has gone forth, what we need now is help by your Holy Spirit to close the gap between what we know and how we live. God, will you give us wisdom? And maybe more foundationally, you want us to have a right view of you. And so in these, this moment of silence, would you, by your Holy Spirit, speak to us? I pray that distractions would be halted even for a little bit longer. May we hear you speak. Lord, your servants are listening, we pray.